0: Good morning. Great to be with you all again. Uh, I so wish that you were all in the room right now. Uh, but you know what? I, I have my dear brother Andy here with me this morning. Uh, hi, Andy. So we're, I rejoice in that. We're going to enjoy God's words together anyway. We're going to be reading from the Gospel of John this morning from chapter 4, verse 1 to 19. I'll, I'll give you a few minutes to look that up. What is true about the whole Bible, and most particularly about the Gospel of John, is that it's designed to first and foremost reveal the greatness of Christ. And then as a consequence of that, we have revealed to us our great need for Christ. God's design has always been to fully reveal in our lives our need for him that becomes a deep longing. The the revelation of his fullness was always meant to reveal our emptiness. This well-known encounter we're going to be looking at this morning between Jesus and the woman of Samaria, the woman at the well, is meant to be read with this critical principle of gospel design, sat at its very heart. The overarching theme of the gospel has always been a persistent story of rescue. It's the master blueprint of escape in the hands of a master locksmith. Uh, And we're going to be looking at one of those extraordinary rescues today. I'm going to be unapologetically looking at the subject of sin today, and I'm going to put that out there right from the start. But I'm wanting us to make sure that we are also holding this great gospel principle up against it. Even though this can be a subject that often confronts us and can uncomfortably challenge our lives at times, we're never left floundering with the terrible emptiness of sin when the fullness of Christ is always on offer. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come and settle in every room where these words are being heard right now. Lord, would you open hearts to the healing found in your gospel truths. Lord, even through the inadequacies of my words today, can I ask that you set the captives free. Holy Spirit, would you do that work in us now, in your mighty name I ask. Amen. Okay, so... John 4, verse 19, sorry, 1 to 19, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptising more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptise, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into the city for food. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw your water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He has given us the well and drank from it himself, and he he did so with his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. One of the things that began to become clear as I read through this passage was that this encounter was a very obvious planned event. There seems to be too many clues going on for it to be just a random encounter. Firstly, why take a detour through a hostile territory for the sake of a shortcut? Most Jews at the time would have not taken that risk. Why a well? Why a woman? Why this woman? Why in the middle of the day? Why when Jesus finds himself alone without his disciples? It all adds up to a carefully constructed moment of divine encounter. A planned encounter that will see a wounded soul, buried by her sin, come to know through Jesus absolute freedom. This is, in fact, a a lovely snapshot of how those who know him or are, are yet to know him will at no point be considered as random afterthoughts. We will uh, never be to him just chance encounters. Every one of our stories, whether we know Jesus yet or not, will have running in their background the intentional, meticulous planning of a saviour Christ. This unsuspecting woman is, is about to become Christ's intended target. I love the fact that she's already been planned into the timeline of God's eternal plan. This will have been a a long-anticipated date in the calendar of heaven. Wouldn't it be wonderful to imagine the hosts of heaven stopping for a moment, the multitude of praise briefly pausing, so they can listen to its champion, who's about to perform a work of masterly Restoration. Let me just say, can I encourage you over this series to allow these stories of encounter to really come alive for you in the Spirit? Can I urge you to ask the Holy Spirit to open up their great imagery? Let's wrap our God-given imaginations around them. We can't allow stories like these just to get lost in our intellect. Let's ask them to become real and lasting templates of life. Holy Spirit, would you come and do that for us, even this morning? Would you open up this story of encounter to become our encounter with you? Holy Spirit, make it become alive and real and relevant to our lives too, amen. There's a really rich seam of reference for us around wells in Scripture. In the Old Testament, wells figure prominently, often referred to as cisterns, where sheep and cattle would be watered. They would be central places of gathering, particularly for women. Men would look for wives at wells. Abraham. Uh, Abraham's servant found a wife for Isaac at a well. Jacob met Rachel at a well. Even Moses found his future wife at a well. God also uses wells as places of divine revelation. He spoke powerfully to Hagar at a well. You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. As we move on into the New Testament, we don't get so many references to cisterns or watercourses or even physical wells. But we begin to hear the wonderful language around the representation of water and its reference to Jesus. The living water, the, the spring of eternal life. Those who draw from me will never go thirsty. So I suppose we could say in this passage, in this scene, we have the physical old covenant well. This particular well was known as Jacob's well. It sat on a piece of land that Jacob had bought 2,000 years earlier. And it was where great patriarchs of God would have lived and walked, had died and been buried. It was an historic place of altars and sacrifice, and of ancient worship to a faithful God. But that time had now passed. This well was really now nothing more than a social gathering place. But now we see sat weary on its stones is Jesus, an altogether different well, a living well, a new covenant well, an endless, bottomless, source of living water this biblical picture has now wonderfully, wonderfully placed these two wells side by side to show for us how the temporary has now given way to the everlasting jesus has deliberately uh, come to this place not to offer this woman a quick fix from the tragedy of her life He'd not come to give her a slap on the wrist in the hope that she would turn her life around. He hadn't just come to give her a few sips of hope from his bucket of goodness and then move on. He'd come after her life. He'd come after the dreadful sin that was devouring him. Jesus already knew That every move this woman had made, every decision she took in her life, every reaction, every reply she was about to make to him would be coming from the dark place of her sin and shame. He wasn't there to satisfy a dry mouth or, or a parched throat. He was there to quench the unrelenting thirst in her soul. So dead and dry was she that she completely missed his first invitation. The water that I offer here will become a spring of welling water of eternal life. She she replied, uh, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. I I have to come here anymore to draw it. This offer didn't get to reach the emptiness of her soul. It just bounced off the hard prison door she stood behind. It wasn't able to penetrate deep enough for its truth to have any kind of meaning to her at all. Jesus' offer was totally misunderstood. As if she'd got nothing more from it than a a practical solution. She was only there in, in the heat of the day because she couldn't bear to face the humiliation from other women of the village. If I don't have to physically come here anymore where my shame is most raw, then I'll take this water you're speaking of. She had a terrible thirst, but had no idea what for. Her sin had locked her away from any kind of truth. But standing, Before her was the master locksmith, the master prophet, who was about to set her free by telling her everything that she'd ever done. Jesus didn't pursue his offering of living water because the vessel he was trying to pour into was unable to receive it. It would have been like trying to pour a waterfall into the narrow neck of a bottle. Most will have been spoiled and lost. Her sin and shame had closed her off from everything that would have given her life. Jesus knew he had to deal with that first. Go call your husband and come here. Jesus doesn't allow us to dictate the terms of our sins. He, of course, allows us through free will to choose whether we surrender it or not. But the conditions around how it gets dealt with remain with him. With almost surgical precision, he goes after the inner workings of our soul. This wasn't Jesus just heaping yet more shame on an already crippled spirit. This was Jesus, like any other life-saving physician would do tackling pain with necessary pain. This wasn't a brutal attempt by Jesus to bring her back into line with the law. He wasn't joining her mockers to shame her into a confession. He knew very well that if he tried to do that, he would lose her to her own wretched sense of self-worth. Instead, filled with unimaginable love and compassion for this woman, he goes about transforming her from a captive to a worshipper. His singular motive here was to set her free, to lift her head so she could look, probably for the first time, into the eyes of a man who wasn't going to beat her or abuse her, who wasn't going to humiliate her or fill her with fear. These eyes that that were gonna fill hers with love and hope and a joy that would set her alight again for the gospel. Go call your husband and come here. Jesus knew this woman had no husband. He knew this woman had given up on marriage and settled for something so much less than what she was worth. This was Jesus cutting to the chase and making his loving incision. Go call your husband and come here. The word here in this command is a significant one. Earlier on, this woman had used the same word with the same uh, same real significance. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here anymore to draw it. This place of shame is too painful for me. But Jesus wants to bring her back to that place. Come with your sin and bring it here to the very place where your hurt and shame is most painful. This is where I get to deal with sin. These are my terms and you need to trust me. This encounter could not have had a better outcome Our captive did indeed become a worshipper, and a worshipper of the highest order. Her testimony of healing and restoration set alight the city of Saishal. Many would come to know Jesus and become worshippers themselves through this encounter. The consequences of the gospel, when sin is dealt with, can be world changing. For some this morning to be challenged about our sin while our lives still remain disrupted by a killer pandemic, might perhaps feel a little bit out of place, maybe even a bit inappropriate or insensitive. I'm not, of course, in any way playing down the devastation this virus has wreaked across this planet. It's already tragically taken hundreds of thousands of lives with inevitably many more to come. The financial and economic loss alone will present many, I'm sure, with life-changing decisions, and I'm living that too. However, I'm also convinced that we have a present and passionate God, longing to be at work at the very heart of every painful loss, every broken heart, and every moment of panic and fear. I'm totally convinced he's battled on our behalf for every cruel injustice this wretched infection has employed. God wasn't caught out by COVID-19, nor will his plan, this plan for this planet be in any way altered by the tiniest slither of history this vi- virus will eventually end up occupying. However real and awful this moment in history is, sin will remain by far the greatest threat to mankind that he will ever have to fight for. Surely the appalling scenes coming out of a divided America at the moment starkly remind us of that. We must never for one moment lose sight of the devious And destructive nature of sin so how are we all doing are we still making sure our our lives remain safe and right before God are our lives still honoring him in the things that we're doing in the choices that we're making are we still guarding our hearts and our minds are we still managing to conquer old habits and temptations. It may be for you that isolation has put added strain on an already difficult area of sin. A number of national newspapers are reporting that drug and alcohol abuse during this time could well have increased by as much as 30%. Online gambling sites are are doing a roaring trade. There's apparently an epidemic in the viewing of pornography online right now. Domestic abuse is up. Many marriages and relationships are under increased strain as isolation takes its toll. It may be that as social beings, when we're deprived of community, when the godly design to be together to embrace and share each other's lives are somehow withdrawn or limited. We can often become very vulnerable and lose ourselves to dark places. In Deuteronomy, it recalls the time when Israel's enemy, the Amalekites, would follow behind them when they were weary in the desert and pick off those uh, from the rear who were weak and isolated, those who were sick and had fallen behind were ruthlessly taken out. We have an enemy like that too, who can employ many of the same tactics in our lives, and our sin will often be what makes us most vulnerable. Our woman at the well was vulnerable and isolated too. She was out on the fringes. She had her own Amalekites to deal with. She, had, she was daily picked off by the savage mockery of other women at the well. They would callously rob her of her self-esteem and self-worth and shame through her unguarded sin would very quickly take hold. Maybe isolation is presenting you today with a real challenge to keep on top of sin. We may not have the same access to our trusted friends at the moment. We may have lost touch with those who look out for us and for those who ask those all important questions. Our safety net could well have some pretty big holes in it right now. If this is you, let me encourage you to put it right today. Isolation has not taken away our our ability to deal with our sin. Open up those channels of, uh, of accountability. Again, many of us can now meet at a distance to do that. Don't go quiet in asking for help through prayer. I know filling out an online form for prayer right now can feel a little bit impersonal. But let me encourage you and I'm I'm gonna put my reputation on the line here and say, your request will not go unanswered. Somebody will phone you back and help will be at hand. The links for this are in the description of both our YouTube and Facebook pages, whichever one you're on right now. But of course, above all, what our passage very clearly teaches us today is that our sin is ultimately dealt with by the redeeming and rescuing hands of a loving Christ. Isolation of any kind will never rob us of that. Indeed, in our story, I love the fact that there was only him and her. He'd planned for her to have his full attention. And you know what? We all get that same full attention from him too. We too get to respond to his personal request to go get your sin and bring it to me. Let my fullness be yours. Let it be my everlasting living water and not the temporary fix of this world that quenches your thirst and brings you back to life. Richard and Jenny are going to lead us to the table in a few moments. And you know what? The cross is actually the perfect place to get what's not right put right. But just before that, I'm going to ask you to stand where you are if you can. I want to just invite you to come and receive from the well of life today. Even if you don't know him yet as your saviour and Lord, the invitation is still yours. His attention is still given to you too right now I'm going to ask just ask if you're weary with sin if there's something in your life at the moment that's become hidden and secret that you just know is not right almost as if you've been breathing stale air come and bring it to the fresh sweet living water of Jesus Christ take time at the well To say sorry, allow the master locksmith to come and set the captive free. Holy Spirit, where it's needed right now, come and do a work of restoration and revival in my brothers and sisters today. Lord, release and raise up worshippers from among the dead and thirsty right now. And Lord, would they go on to set this town, this nation and these nations, a light for you and your glory. Amen. If you'd like to respond further, my email will be on the screen right now. Along with our link to Facebook or YouTube, if you want a request for prayer for anything, please do make use of those. Bless you all.